kind of celebration that is worthy of a resurrected Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, or uh, follow along on your device, if you'd prefer. Uh, but And we're going to look at the passage that's found there, Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse number 32. And the scripture says, Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Clopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And, of course, the irony is he's the only person who fully knows everything that happened in those days. He knew better than anybody because he had uh, intimately lived them. And then verse 19, And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our, le- our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while we t- he walked with us, or while he talked with us on the road, and he opened the scriptures to us? God, we're so grateful for these encounters and all the witnesses who have spoken and given to us the uh, truth and reality of the fact that you're alive and we worship you because you're resurrected. And we pray that you'll use your word in our lives today to stir within us a a heart that might uh, have passion and enthusiasm for this truth to live for you. And we pray that you'll speak now by your spirit of truth and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This is uh, the first year I remember more commercials about Easter than just the Cadbury uh, Bunny commercial. Like I saw one this year that was um, about honey-baked hams, and it was like uh, instead of a Kelly-baked ham, buy honey-baked ham. Apparently, Kelly is not very good at uh, cooking ham. 
and not even the dog wants Kelly's ham. So they're like, instead, go get the honey-baked ham. But I think, you know, when we think about uh, sacred observances like Easter, sometimes what we get in a culture like ours are replacement ideas, and uh, some of it is just fun, like Easter egg hunts and that kind of thing, and uh, Easter bunnies and hams. But um, what we have to really contend for, I think, for ourselves as people who care about Jesus is the reality that secularism will empty out the spiritual reality of these things that we're really observing and celebrating if we, if we are not careful to make it otherwise in our own life. I mean, those things are okay, but the reality is there is a spiritual truth that we don't need to bury under a lot of other things. We need to continue to uh, see those truths and hold them in our lives. And so when we look at this passage today, it's interesting because we've uh, encountered two people. Some people say either a husband and wife or just two travelers who were going back to their possibly their home in a little place called Emmaus. So small, you know, all the archaeology and all the things that have happened in the ancient Near East, they don't even know the location of Emmaus now. And the word that's used to describe it isn't anything like town or city. It was a no, nowhere place that they were on their way back from when they encounter the resurrected Jesus. And the condition of these followers of Christ, these uh, Pilgrims, really, they were pilgrims who had been to Passover. And while they were at Passover, experienced uh, a profound loss. And they returned back home hopeless. That's the condition that we find them in this passage. Hopeless, despondent, emptied of any aspiration that all of this that the, their following of Jesus had been, been about up to now was going to amount to anything. That's where Jesus found these, these folks, perplexed, empty, hopeless. When we think about what he's going to say to them, on some level we can see that their hope never really could have been realized in the way that they wanted because it was not founded on the things that he was saying. That was often the case in the, uh, with the people around Jesus is that they were mistaken about what Jesus was about anyway. They thought he was saying one thing and he was saying something completely different. So their hope never could have been realized in the way that they expected because it wasn't what Jesus had come to do. They thought, well, Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of Israel again. He's come to make us a world power in the way that we were during the days of David. But that wasn't why Jesus had come. And they missed it. They missed what the prophets had said and sometimes we miss it too. But the scripture here makes it plain that there was a purpose in mind that God had for us which was to bring you and I hope. To bring us hope. And that hope was going to come through a, a loss that was unbelievable to the people that were following Jesus in his day. And when, when we look back on it and we think about it, what we've sung about, the suffering, the, the, the willingness that God had to come here to put on flesh and to live a human life, to be punished for us and to come as a substitute for us and his, un- his great love for you and I. We see that, that there is a hope, but it's different than what people were expecting to happen and different really than what people think sometimes even now. The empty tomb 
what we see in this passage is the empty tomb is the birthplace of hope. That's where hope was born, in that empty tomb. And so there are two big truths I want us to think about in this passage as we look at it together today. The first one is we see Christ entering into our hopelessness. He enters into our hopelessness. He comes right into their despair. These Passover pilgrims who are walking back this It says seven miles. Some people say maybe it was a round trip of seven miles. They're not certain, but they were certainly walking home with heavy hearts, reflecting on the trauma that they had experienced. Jesus' death was traumatic, violent, bloody. It wasn't uncommon for them to see people crucified on the roadside. It was Rome's way of saying, don't break our laws. They had seen crucified people, but think about this friend. For, for this, it was about 150 people, we know at the very end, who were Jesus' intimates, his friends, the ones who stayed with him, who continued to listen and believe. And that's who these people were. They were people who, even though they were Passover pilgrims, they had gone into Jerusalem for the observance of the Passover. And in God's perfect time, and that's exactly when the Lamb of God would lay down his life, during Passover. Even though you remember the uh, chief priest and the scribes were like, let's don't do this during this time. But, it, but that's exactly when it occurred, was during Passover, because it was when the Lamb of God was to take away the sin of the world. Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and he's going to be crucified, but on the third day he'll rise again. And somehow they didn't hear any of that. And so they're traumatized by his death. And that's the condition in which they walk back to their, we presume, to their little home in Emmaus. And Jesus joins them in their journey. And they're completely unaware of who he was. And when you study this passage, it's plain that it was uh, uh, its own kind of miracle. It was a miracle that God veiled their eyes from recognizing him. It was deliberate. And they're completely unaware of who it was that came alongside them as they talked with all the weight of the world on their shoulders. You know, that's how we feel sometimes, discouraged with every step we take. Not alert to the reality that Christ is near and real and cares. Just like then, we walk along, struggling under the weight of our own burden. Maybe it's guilt, or maybe it's brokenness in our life, or maybe it's disappointment that we experienced, but that's exactly where Christ was, was right there, even though they didn't see it, even though they didn't know it, he was right there with them in the middle of their discouragement, interested in them on their journey, interested in you on your journey, committed to us, committed to them in exactly the same way. The text indicates they were prevented from recognizing Jesus. I think about that in our life. What prevents you from seeing Jesus? What prevents you from experiencing him as being real in your own own life? You know, sometimes we say, Christians that I've known, 
Christians let me down. They would probably tell you the same thing I would say. The very thing that brought me to Jesus was an awareness of my imperfection. Awareness of my need. And we think sometimes, well, I've been disappointed by people. Well, the person who will never disappoint us gave his life for us. And nobody's going to come to Jesus unless they have a deep awareness of the fact of their own brokenness and their own, own guilt and their own sin that's alienated them and separated them from God. What brought me to Jesus was that in the middle of my hopelessness, I saw a little glimmer of hope. I heard about truth that might transform my life and might give me some foundation to go forward. The sadness these disciples were feeling became the point of entry for Jesus. As they walked, they were sad, the scripture says. Jesus is like, well, tell me about that. Tell me about this sadness. Why you're walking and you're sad. And they begin to narrate uh, for Jesus this story. But I think about that in my own life at 24 years of age with a lot of disappointment and brokenness and hopelessness and sadness and isolation. That was the point of entry for Jesus to come to me. was right there at that place. And that's the way it is for a lot of people. I think if you listen to a lot of Christians, they would narrate to you, listen, this is how I encountered Jesus. He came to me when I was isolated. He came to me when I was sad, when I was separated. And he brought to me this beginning of hope. Jesus teased the narrative out of these travelers. He's like, what is it? What's going on here? Like he didn't know, but he did know, right? He knew all of it, but he teases the narrative out of these travelers, these pilgrims. And I think people sometimes wish God were more overt. Like, God, why don't you just come right out and say it? Why don't you show up? Why don't I see miracles? But when Jesus did appear in the first century, people saw plenty of miracles. It was one of the things that was compelling and attractive is that he fed thousands and thousands of people, that he raised people from the dead. He raised Lazarus. It's also the reason that people jealously crucified Jesus is because when Jesus raises up Lazarus, it was really a turning point for those people in the first century. The, his opponents, they're, they're like, this is out of hand. We think about, like, if I could only experience Christ in this really clear, overt way, but they were experiencing him in just that way. But the thing that has to be present for a person is surrender. They had all this heavy evidence. What they didn't have is surrender, a willingness to say, I'm going to stop directing my own life. That's where a person has to get to where the turning point comes in is the willingness to say, I'm not going to direct my own life anymore. I'm going to lay my life down in, a, in my will. I'm going to surrender and yield to the one who says, the only way you can come to me is by acknowledging that I'm the Lord. The writer Paul says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. He says, there's this incredible crisis that has to happen in your life where you come to this intersection where hope and faith 
collide and we have to choose faith. We have to choose surrender. So we could hope that, it's interesting to me how Jesus comes to them and how he doesn't reveal himself immediately and how he teases this narrative out of them and they begin to tell the story and he listens and it's all real. But they have to come to a place of receiving who he is and what he's done by faith. The, to me, the turning point in this passage is verse 21 where they say, we had been hoping, we had been hoping, but now our hope is gone. That's what they seem to imply. For then the death of Jesus seemed the death of hope. They're like, our hope has died. Tony Evans said, Jesus didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. He said, I'm just getting started. It's not finished. He says, now is when hope is introduced into our experience because he's alive, because hope comes through him. Resurrection for Christians is the historical hinge point of everything. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. For us, we look back to hundreds and hundreds of people. The Bible says in the first century there were about 500 people at one time in a gathering who saw Jesus physically, visibly raised from the dead. The word resurrection means for a corpse to come back to life, to be animated. They go to the tomb expecting to anoint his body and they find the the stone is rolled away. They find no, no one is there. And then Jesus begins to show up in people's experience. People like Simon Peter and the other disciples. He comes to them in the upper room again where they're hidden for concern for their safety. And he shows up among them and says, peace be with you. And he breaks bread with them in several times to prove, like, listen, this is like a physical, visible person in a glorified form. And he keeps showing up to people. And they, the reason that you're sitting here today is because 2,000 years ago, other people said, we saw Jesus alive. And then people have kept saying that over and over again now for these thousands of years. We saw Jesus, and on the basis of their confession we confess too we say the same thing Jesus is alive and it's the place where hope begins so in the first century we know that most of these people chose martyrdom if it came to that rather than deny Jesus they were there was like the exception it is believed traditionally was John who was exiled on Patmos because he wouldn't deny Christ. But all of the rest of these people chose death rather than to deny what they knew that they had experienced, which was that Jesus was alive. And then the rest of these uh, folks, people like Thomas, they say Thomas took the gospel all the way to India, traditionally, historically. And others of these people, like Paul, were pressing the gospel into the frontier of Western Europe by the end of the first century. This is how adamant and passionate they were about this truth, that Christ was alive. So he appears to these folks where hope seems to run out and Christ entered their hopelessness, but not only did he enter their hopelessness, but he altered 
their hopelessness. Secondly, the rest of this passage, he calls these folks, first of all, thick-headed and slow-hearted. Jesus is so nice, isn't he? Thick-headed, foolish, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They were reluctant to believe what was in the prophets. They saw what they wanted in Messiah, many of the people that listened to Jesus. And of course, it made sense for them because they lived under Roman rule. Not what they wanted. They wanted to be free. And they were looking for someone to secure their freedom. But what they missed was that in places like Psalm 2, Psalm chapter 22, Isaiah chapter 53, and the prophets, there were predictions that the Messiah would suffer. He would be wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement that would bring us peace would be upon him. And by his wounds we would be healed. That's what the scripture had said. He cries out in Psalm 22 when you read the 22nd Psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? King David foresaw the cross. All my joints are out of place, it says there. When you read Psalm 22, a lot of it was in the mouth of Jesus as he hung on the cross. But somehow they missed the idea that the Messiah would suffer. The Messiah would be punished. The Messiah would bleed and die. We often think someone said of Good Friday is defeat and Easter Sunday is victory, but the Gospels present Friday as victory and Sunday as vindication. Vindication, the resurrected Christ. The writer in the book of Acts, Paul actually, when he speaks on Mars Hill, said it this way. He said that there, there's a day that God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. God will judge the world in righteousness by the man, it says he has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Who's the man God ordained? The one he raised from the dead. That's what Paul says. There's a day of judgment. There's a day when uh, accounting will occur, but God's already shown compassion and mercy. The one who w- uh, took our judgment, the one who took our sin, is the one that God raised from the dead. So he's already paid this price for us, and he's already been raised to vindic- in vindication. Just, he, his resurrection is the justification of God's own verdict and God's own judgment and God's own activity to, to rescue you. They were hoping that he would redeem Israel, and in fact, he did redeem Israel, just not in the way they thought. To redeem is to purchase. He purchased. He bought us. And, and he did that in himself as he, he was hung on that cross for us. People have misconceptions about Jesus and that can, can, can obscure his reality to, to us as it did to them. And he tells them that in the narrative. We think that issues like Christian nationalism are new. But the disciples were struggling with the very same flaw in their theology. They thought he, this is all about the, the salvation of Israel, the nation, 
And they tied their faith to this system that Jesus is like, no, no. The last thing that Jesus dealt with was that before he ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1 says that they came to him and the disciples asked him a question. At this time, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? That's the very last thing they asked him. You remember what he said? That's none of your business. That's what he said. He says, the times and the seasons, the Father has not given into your hand. But he says, here's what I'm saying to you. You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. He says, that's what I care about, is you being witnesses to the reality of my resurrection and the hope that comes through it. Their misconceptions were clouding his reality. And then Jesus opens up the Old Testament, and we think, man, I'd love to have, I'd love to hear that podcast, you know. <laughs> Jesus taking the, from Genesis, Moses, going all the way through the Old Testament and telling his story from all of those places because God has been telling one story from the very beginning. One story. That story is that he loved us, crafted and created people in his image, made people to be in relationship with him, and of course sin disrupted that fellowship, and because of sin, death became a reality in the world. And ever since that happened, God has been weaving into human experience a story of rescue and salvation and pardon and forgiveness so that anybody that called on the name of the Lord would be saved. And he was telling this story all along through a nation, through people, and then finally through the Messiah, Jesus. And that's what Jesus said about himself is that he was the expected Messiah, just not in the way that they perceived. So he, the scripture's been telling this story. It culminates in the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the soon return of Christ the King. The Old Testament prefigures and predicted Jesus. When we read the Old Testament over and over again, we see instances of how all of these things, we talked about some of it as we've been going through Hebrews, the foreshadowing of Christ in uh, the Passover lamb, for example, and when and then Jesus come comes and it's all, it was all a story that was being told about him. When they come to their village, Jesus acted as if he would go further. The scripture says he put the ball in their court. He invited, but he didn't violate, and they invited him to stay, and he stayed because where Jesus is welcomed, he stays. Where Jesus is welcomed, he stays. That's the question again for us. Is he welcome to in, in our life? Are we welcoming him? Because we see that where he's welcomed, he shows up, he stays. Then he breaks bread with them. And of course, if they had been around Jesus, they had seen this before. And the Bible says he was revealed to them in the breaking of bread. What did Jesus say about himself? I am what? I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. And he shows up and is revealed in the breaking of bread. And just as food becomes us as we ingest it, so Jesus is in us as we take him in. What we say, um, we are what we eat. 
right? We are what we eat. Well, as we, Jesus said about himself, I'm the bread of life. He, he, whoever partakes of me has life. So as we ingest, as we take him in to ourselves by faith, he, he becomes the most important and essential part of who you are. This is probably not a form of communion. We're going to observe communion in a few minutes. But in communion, we're reminded of what Jesus has done. It certainly in this narrative is a sacred moment. And after he left, the scripture says, they knew it had been Jesus. Their eyes are open. They know it was Jesus. And they said, while we were walking with him and he talked to us, did not our hearts burn within us? That's what we need today is Christians whose hearts are burning for Christ. No, what did Jesus say when we in the in the churches in Asia Minor when he came and spoke to them? He says, "You're neither hot nor cold because you're not hot or cold." He says, "I want to spit you out of my mouth." What we don't need today is just lukewarm Christians who have no passion about this thing that how can we not be passionate about it? How can we not be moved by the idea that there's a living Savior resurrected who came to us and loves us and bought us? So, away with apathy. That's not what they had when they encountered Jesus. They were, their hearts burned, the scripture says, within them. When the disciples went out with the message of Christ. They, there's a place where they show up in Thessalonica and they say, the people in Thessalonica say, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. That's the kind of Christianity that we need today. The kind that when we show up, people are like, hey, those people that turned the world upside down, they're here too. Jesus is fully able to transform our despair into hope. He comes alongside us on our journey when the last option for hope seems emptied of all its promise. And he reminds us that he is the one who was and is and is to come. That's what he says. The one who died but now is alive forevermore. The one who stands at the side of our grief and says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Because he lives, we'll live also if our confident hope is in him. He comes to wake us up out of our sleepwalking, dull-minded unbelief to a life where, because of him, hope is a burning reality for us. And he stays where he's welcomed. Our fellowship with Jesus is the clearest indicator that we truly believe that everything depends on him. I think about that. The idea of fellowship, the idea of connection, the idea of worship as an expression of our life. If we believe that Jesus is who he said he, he, he was, then he will become to us indispensable. Has your observation of Easter become emptied of its deeper meaning? All the sort of residual things are fine as far as they go but 
when it comes down to it, it's about the fact that we worship a resurrected Savior. Today is a good time to return to Him, to be reminded of who He he wanted us to understand Him to be and to receive Him in just that way. We're going to have a song together in a few moments, and we're going to have just a few moments of public commitment. And after that, we'll observe the Lord's table together. And so here's the invitation to you today. For some of us, this is just a great opportunity for us to return to the passion that drew us to Christ in the beginning and what we experienced when we knew him at first and to love him with all our heart and mind and soul. And we've said this recently that, like, we will fill up this baptistry. Baptism is an important way that we demonstrate our discipleship journey in the very beginning Jesus instructed us to be baptized as we follow him and so I would say if you've never been baptized as a follower of Christ nothing would make us happier than to fill up that pool and to give you the opportunity to take that step of obedience and being baptized as a follower of Christ and of course what comes before that is faith and trust, belief that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and everybody else said he was. And so however it is that God is uh, working and speaking to you today, then the invitation is to hope, is to a step of hope. So I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to ask you to stand, and we'll sing together. If I can pray with you during this time, then I'll invite you to do that. And then afterward, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. And so if you've never taken communion here before, it, we do it in two ways. One is the, a method that's called intinction, uh, which means that you'll receive a piece of bread and you'll take it and you'll dip it into a cup and receive it that way. And it represents the body of Christ and the blood of Christ shed for us. But also we're aware that there are folks that are not yet comfortable in receiving uh, that way and have uh, issues that might cause them to want to use the sealed uh, packets. And Jonathan will uh, provide a station there if that's the way you'd prefer to receive communion today. And here's what we think is that if you've trusted in Jesus today, this is an important aspect of worship also. And we invite you to uh, participate in it, understanding it that way. I want to pray for us, and then, as I say, if you'll stand, if there's a need that you have for prayer, I invite you to come uh, during our time of commitment. God, we're so grateful for who Jesus is and how that sometimes he uh, comes to us in the middle of our misconceptions to clarify what we need to see, and he shows us who he is and who you are. And so today, God, we pray that we'll be willing to lower our defenses and humble ourselves and to have a heart that's open to receive Jesus as Lord and to take away for, for ourselves this idea that we are in charge of our own life. God, to be willing to surrender that and to yield up that. And God, I pray that you'll help us today to have courage to follow you. And we need you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You are still.
All right. At this time, if uh, those who are our other elders would come, we'll, um, 